Hello again, everyone. Your host, Michael Vosbein for Drummer Nation Live, the show where we talk about all things drum and drumming with some of the best in the business. Today is no exception in that I have for you the legendary educator and funk drummer, pioneer, innovator, David Garibaldi. Now, this is an interview I've edited, cleaned up a bit, and the reason I wanted to do that, we did this like four years ago, but uh, the audio was terrible because we were in a high-rise in Atlanta in the middle of the summer. The AC was cranking in a hotel room, and I didn't know how to get rid of the hiss. I still don't know how to do it very well, but I've cleaned it up quite a bit, and I thought it would be fair to David to, to get this out the way it should be. And um, uh, to, to a little clarification, you know, David had a horrible, horrible accident some years prior to that with uh, a train, and almost died. So uh, a lot of people were really supportive and, and wishing him the best, and he did very well. And this was right soon thereafter when he was back on the road with Tower of Power. So um, you'll hear us address that. We'll talk about uh, the Bay Area influence on him in, in the Oakland area as coming up as a drummer and some of the hallmarks of his style. So stick with us. We'll be right back with the show. Hey, everybody out there in cyber world, this is Adam Nussbaum. Hi, Dave DeCenzo here. Hi, Bermuda Schwartz here. Hey, everyone, Stanton Moore here. Hey, guys, Johnson Pesta here. Hey, everybody, this is John J.R. Robinson. Hi, Todd Zuckerman here for the Drum Center of Portsmouth. They're knowledgeable, they'll be able to help you and guide you and make the right choices for you and the music that you play. From Wingnut to Wuhan, these chaps know what they're talking about. Highly recommend it. But what do I know? I'm a drummer. Created specifically for practice sessions, Quiet Tone Practice Cymbals by Sabian are designed to respond and feel like traditional cymbals, right down to their clearly defined bell, so the drummers won't have to change the way they play. Quiet Tone Practice Cymbals by Sabian. David Garibaldi, thank you for doing my show. Pleasure. Welcome to Drummer Nation. Good to see you. I don't know if you remember me from way back when, but I studied from you in 1981 in, when you were in that house on Oakland Street in the San Fernando Valley. Yep. And you laid out some things for me that changed my life, man. Uh -oh. uh, in terms of the textures and timbres, and, and we'll get into some of the, ta the tales of it. But um, before that, let me ask you, well, the, the thing I have to ask you is, is about your accident and your recovery. Because so many people were so worried and upset, and so many people prayed for you. And it's so good I speak on behalf of everybody to see you back playing and on tour with Tower. Yeah, people were very nice. I mean, uh, when it happened, I mean, I got loads of text messages and phone calls on the stuff. It was really overwhelming. I mean, even, you know, now when people I meet say, you know, we're, we're praying for you and all that stuff, you know, so I have no doubt that I'm sitting here talking to you because of that. So, you know, it's all good. Well, you've always had a, a strong faith. Even back then, we used to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I presume you're still a man of faith and conviction, and that's how you get you through this. Uh, it did. It, it absolutely did. Um, you learned a few things. <laughs> Mortality is one. Well, you know, you just learn to be thankful for life. It's precious. I mean, things happen in an instant. Has happened to us, and 
don't take it for granted, you know, enjoy what you have at this moment, that's all there is. Now, what you do is so finely tuned in terms of the nuance of note placements and note volumes and values and everything else that it's a hallmark of your style. Was that hard to get back? Well, kind of yes and no. I mean, there were some things that happened that I wasn't prepared for, kind of, you know, little coordination glitches and things, you know, because I had a pretty serious concussion. But, um, you know, you work through all those things, and, you know, it was embarrassing at first. Nobody noticed it, and, you know, some of the, the guys, they were all really cool, you know. They were just glad I was back. I was glad I was back. And then I just decided that I wasn't going to be... I wasn't going to be concerned about it. I was just going to deal with it, whatever came up. Um, so I was no longer embarrassed by it. Uh, no, you know, it, it just didn't become an issue. I just began working on things and finding different ways to uh, do things. You know, getting informed about how the brain heals itself. Uh, you know, just learning about what happened to me. You know? And uh, that's been. It's been really great, really powerful. To, to tell me quite a bit, you know, help me focus a lot more. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, we're all delighted you're back. Let's let's talk about some of the early day stuff. You came up in the late '60s in Oakland. Uh, came of age as a musician then. Uh, with Tower Power by like 1970 or something, I'm guessing. Yeah, July 23rd actually. <laughs> and what I'm wondering is, usually when bands emerge from certain environments. They're not the only people playing in that style. There's a lot of, right. well, there was an undercurrent of, of stuff happening in Oakland at the time? Well, you know, the, kind of the, the Bay Area was, at that time, was pretty uh, electric place musically. I mean, there were so many things going on creatively in all different styles of music. So, you know, you could go out and hear all this great music of different kinds, you know, all the time. And people doing really unique original music, um, it was just great, and then there was the Fillmore, you know, so Bill Graham, you know, was kind of educating young people about music, and, you know, he put together all these different shows, different things, different styles of music on one show, you know, and kind of educated the public about it, about music, especially, you know, like young people, and so growing up, there was always lots of music of different kinds that I was hearing. I was always liked that. I always liked the diversity of music. I always liked blending of things together. I mean, we were doing that, you know, they, 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 it became called fusion, you know, and now, you know, they explore all the world music and all that stuff. And the Bay Area was loaded with all that stuff. And so you kind of grow up, that's what you hear, and the people around you are mixing all these things up all the time. So that's kind of how what you become. And uh, so Tower, you know, was like a, how would you say, kind of a the child of that kind of musical environment, you know, I mean, we're influenced by all of those things, and so that's where, you know, our music, we're still that way. You know. Now, that was my point, it came from an environment. Who were some of the uh, principal influences, influencers to your style? Well, I always liked, um, always liked, you know, big band music, so, you know, at that time, you know, I came up in the jazz tradition like everybody else did, you know, nobody was really playing that much rock and roll. I mean, it was still kind of considered like a rude 
certain deal, you know. And it didn't really have the credibility that jazz and other, you know, quote unquote, un you know, organized music had. And so um, we just kind of built things in that way, you know. I mean, I love Sonny Payne with Count Basie. Woody Herman, you know, Jay Camp, Woody Herman, those kind of guys. And then when I went to hear the James Brown guys, that really changed a lot, you know, pretty dramatically changed me, you know. And then when I first heard Tower, they were doing kind of uh, original music and then really obscure cover songs that only a few musicians would know. You know, if you had a record collection, you knew what these things were. So it was kind of cool. So joining the band, I was able to um, kind of create the kind of drummer that I like and all these different things and I just put all these different things together and add and subtract and, you know, build a, build a player based on, you know, your vision, the things you hear. Well, one of the people you turned me on to back then, I remember, the first time I heard that band was sitting on the floor in your studio. You pulled out some records and played me the meters. Oh, yeah. With Zigabook. Zig, yeah. Uh, let's look at some of the hallmarks of your style. Um, tell us what the two sound level concept is. Well, I mean, I got that from listening to the James Brown guys. You know, they, they have accented notes and then all this unaccented notes. They kind of blended in. And it sounded to me, sounded like somebody had a little shaker and they were playing this shaker that was creating, you know, like a flow and texture within the beat itself. And then, you know, Zig was like that. And then Purdy uh, was probably the most sophisticated with that at the time. And so it was just a kind of a way to play grooves that, now, I guess Earl, um, what's his name? Palmer. Earl Palmer started that in New Orleans, taking the beats that were normally done by separate components and kind of put them together on the drum set. So he kind of started doing that stuff. And then, you know, guys like Zig and the other New Orleans drummers, they were, you know, picked up on all that stuff. You know. How about the... Uh Linear patterns. What does linear drumming mean? Linear was, uh, as far as I know, linear was a term that Gary Chafee used to describe that kind of playing. And so the way that I played was like notes were layered on top of one another. One voice played a rhythm, the, the other voice plays another rhythm, you know, and they kind of intersect and the points are by themselves, but then they also intersect. So when I met Gary, we were playing in Boston at this place called Kikikins um, in Boston. It was a pretty popular club there. And Gary came down. Actually, no, Gary didn't come down. It was, it was a bunch of his students. Uh, Casey Shirell, who, was, who now teaches at Berkeley, but he was at Gino Benelli and all, you know, all kind of other folks. And uh, some other great drummers, they came down and they were, going, they were students at Berkeley. And so they took me to meet Gary and Alan Dawson. And so uh, when I met Gary, he was I got really kind of turned on by the kind of playing that I was doing. And so uh, I mean, 
one, one thing we did, he took me to play with the, the faculty ensemble. Was, I think it was Gary Burton and Pat Metheny and Dave, no, Dave Sanders. It was Dave Sanders. And, you know, they had this faculty ensemble. He, we were in a classroom and he had me just play along with them so that they could kind of see and feel what I, what I was doing, you know. And it was, it was, we just jammed a little bit. It was, you know, and then talked. So it was really fun, you know. And then when Gary started getting into that kind of play, and he decided that for him, the way he put it all together was that it was good, it was more linear than layer. Linear being, you know, a one line, like a flute, you know, instruments that don't play uh, chords or many other instruments. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for him, it was all about creating and so he was the first guy, really, that developed that term and kind of that, I think, you know, that style, really. So when you're playing, you have two sound level concepts, the linear thing, yes. the layers, yes. but you also had um, substituting limbs on different sound sources, which went oh, that, yeah, you know, sure, you know, kind of like ones. you get in the practice room and then you start changing things around, and, you know, you... you that song that we recorded on the back to open recording was the open stroke and then that's kind of a crazy drum groove and I was learning how to play samba at the time so I practiced in my studio at home and one day I decided well what if I was to take the foot ostinato and play it with the right hand and then try to build a beat around that so that's how that came about and then I started to understand how you could move you know switch the roles of your limbs you know switch rhythms around and all of that and uh, I remember coming to a that. lesson where I would work on some patterns and feel pretty good that I had them and you say that's not that's not bad Michael now switch your right hand with your left foot yeah. <laughs> go what David well I think if, you're, if you want to build coordination you know you're talking about language right and so you're learn to become conversational. So to do that, you have to use your language in all kinds of different situations, you know. So the same as language, to become conversational, you have to practice it and practice it in different ways so that you don't sound like it came out of the textbook. The, uh, some of the other elements I identify from your style, I'm not the only one to do so, uh, you take a pattern, Linear layers, all that stuff, two sound levels, and then start on each 16th. Yeah, the permutation stuff, yeah. Permutation. That word I got from uh, a teacher that I had, a lot of Mr. Graves. I, his name's Gene Graves. Uh, I can't call him Gene. He wants me to call him Gene. He's still, he's still Mr. Graves to me. He'll always be Mr. Graves. I just got so much respect for him. And so he was the one that taught us about the permutation thing. You take little rhythms and then move them, you know, move them with 16th note or 8th note over. And that's the term they use. And permutation is a math term, you know. One of the definitions is how many different ways exist in a pattern of numbers, different combinations in a pattern of numbers, right? And so um, rhythm being mathematical and math being an infinite concept, you can basically have you, you you're you're playing with the, 
you're involved in something that's inexhaustible. Yeah, but it's not you know, it is. And so you can come up with so many different varieties of things. I mean, the variation within 16, 16th notes is absolutely stunning. You know, um, I'm still amazed at that. Uh, yeah, I am too, and how well you can integrate that. Speaking of that, you also, a hallmark of your style would be to do all of the above and then make it groups of fives or sevens or nines that flow through. Yeah, that was, that, that was kind of was the playing the odd times into even times. And so, you know, basically, as you described it, you know, you can do eight note rhythms, like six, eight rhythms, or, you know, become five or seven or nine, eight. And then you're just basically superimposing that over the top to create these longer phrases. And so what I learned from that was how it, it kind of dissolves the bar line. So you can just Same. kind of start creating and moving things in and out, giving stuff. And, you know, and also, it depends on the context. I mean, you're not going to do that in every kind of music. But it's just another tool, another way to, you know, to help yourself develop and to get deeper into your vocabulary. Had you studied Indian Carnatic music? Because they, they do a lot. Well, I've never studied with it. But, well, just the things that I learned, I learned from Gary's books who studied, you know, those things, Gary Chafin. And then I was in a band with Zakir Hussain for a couple of years and with Mickey Hart. And that was pretty cool. And, you know, being around him, he was, he's always teaching. He was always very pleasant and was music all the time, drumming all the time. And so um, what I learned from him was kind of the commitment to an art, you know. And so he has this title, Ustad, U-S-T-A-D, Ustad Zakir Hussain, which means master. And so I said, well, how did you get this? And he said, oh, Ravi Shankar gave it to me on a concert. So it's only bestowed upon you right, well, by, by another master. And so I thought, that that's pretty cool. Then another day was, there's a, and I can't remember the exact date, but there was a day in India where uh, students celebrate through teachers. So we show up on the gig one day, I don't know, we are touring somewhere, we show up on the gig one day, and he gives everybody some incense, and he says, this is the day in India where you pay tribute to all your teachers. That's pretty cool. I've never, it's very cool. I've never experienced anything like that. And so, all this just made me appreciate, I know I get off the subject, but just, you know, learning about how to commit oneself to what they want to do, to the dream that they have. And so, uh, Indian music still, I want to study it someday. I, I put together all the things that I know about it, I put together on my own. And, uh, you know, so I'm... Steve Smith's a good pal of mine, so he's really into that. I think the main thing is to, whatever you do, have it be as musical as possible and have it make sense in the music that you play and always serve the music that you're playing. So if it doesn't require that you do some of those kind of things that you've studied and you absolutely have to play, then you have to exhibit the restraint and you know learn to play for the music. I think that's what kind of makes turns you into a musician is if you learn to serve the music that you play. In your practice room, you know, you develop all kinds of interesting things that are
are shaped differently when you actually start using something. You know, you're using it. It shapes it and becomes practical. It turns, it goes from being a theorem to a theory. A theorem is, I believe that's unproven. One of them, one of them's proven, one's unproven. So what you're doing is taking the, the theory and then you're proving it by using it in a musical you know, that's, that's precisely what I was getting. Bands, they call the drummer-bass player combination the battery, right? Like a pitcher and a catcher. It's the battery. It's, it's the juice. There are special circumstances where great drummers and bass players like that will hit something that's better than, than the sum total is amazing. David Garibaldi and Rocco Preston. Yeah. Uh, what, how much of Rocco's playing influences you and vice versa? And talk about that team. Yeah, I think, you know, like Rocco and I were just really good together. I mean, it was always that way, you know, um, from the very beginning. You know, Rocco had a really unique ability to um, play with the drummer. He was like a radar. And he had a real keen kind of a sense of how to play real intuitively. I mean, you know, he'd hear long notes, he'd play long notes. When he'd hear short notes, he'd play short notes. And that kind of stuff. So he was, um, he didn't have like a, a, you know, not a lot of knowledge. He really didn't know what he was doing. But he had all of that intuitive thing that musicians, you know, go to college that they never get in college. They get all the rest, but they don't get the part that really allows you to play with other people. You know, they don't, they, that, that's something you learn on the bandstand. So Rocco's, uh, Really unique, one-of-a-kind player. Uh, when we first started playing together, I used to make these cassette tapes of you know, our rehearsals. And I, I was listening to one of these recordings, and I heard him play, uh, when I was playing on my right cymbal, he played like a really long note. And when I played on my hi-hat, he played a real short note. He said, man, you know, I'm listening to this tape, and you're, here's what you're doing. I mean, are you, are you aware of this? I said, no. I said, well, why, why are you doing with that? You know, it's what you showed it to him. And he said, well, it just seems like that's what I should do. Ears. I mean, that's brilliant. It's big ears. Yeah. Brilliance, yeah. Absolutely. Brilliance. So, and and, and you, your part along with it, I mean. Well, my thing was like, brilliant more ears. like I had the, you know, all this rhythm stuff that I was doing. And so he was like a sort of blank canvas in that way. You know, we just kind of did our thing together. And he, Together. Well, it certainly worked well, and it still does. I'm so glad to see you playing. I don't want to keep you at two gigs today. Two gigs today. <laughs> We're so doing the television show and then thing Okay. Well, thank you for your time, David. It's great to catch up with you. These are long formats. I do a lot of them by Skype, so maybe you could be a guest again. Another time, I'll be honored sure. if you would. My pleasure. Hey everybody, how you doing? This is Bobby A, and today I wanted to tell you about how much I really love the Hudson Music Digital app. Okay, now, check it out. It's an app that you can get for your device, and you can purchase books from the Hudson Music Digital Store and have them stored right on your device. The great thing about it is you always have it with you, and any content that might be video-related or music-related, is right there at your fingertips. It's a wonderful resource.
Memphis Drum Shop is the world's premier provider of percussion instruments. With six showrooms of gear, MySymbol.com, the Memphis Gong Chamber, and a first-rate repair department, turn to Memphis Drum Shop for all your percussion needs. <laughs>